I'm Andrew O'Hagan, host of a new podcast from the London Review of Books. It's about the bloodiest and most controversial event of the Falklands War, the sinking of the General Belgrano. Margaret Thatcher was accused of a war crime. The truth would only emerge in the pages of a private diary. This is the Belgrano Diary. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. This episode of the LRB podcast is the first in an ongoing and occasional collaboration with Talking Politics, a weekly podcast with David Runciman. You can find Talking Politics in iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. Hello, my name is David Runciman and this is Talking Politics. This week we're talking to Mary Beard about women in power. It's one of a series of conversations we'll be doing over the next year in conjunction with the London Review of Books, talking to some of their writers about some of the things that they're writing and doing with the LRB. How do we think about women's intellects? How do we think they're smart? In what way can a woman be clever? You know, if you go back to the ancient world, people say, oh, look, Greeks and Romans, they had a woman goddess of wisdom. No, they jolly well didn't. They had an androgyne who was a virgin and not even born from a woman was their goddess of wisdom. So there is no way for women to be wise. We'll be coming to that conversation a little bit later. First of all, we're going to catch up on British politics because we've neglected that a little, I think, with other things going on. And this week there are two big by-elections. So I've got Helen Thompson and Chris Brooke here. The by-elections are in Stoke-on-Trent and Copeland in Cumbria. They are both being held as a result of the sitting MPs standing down to take up other job opportunities. And the jobs are sort of symbolic of these MPs' distance from the Corbyn project. Jamie Reid in Copeland is rejoining the nuclear industry. And Tristram Hunt in Stoke-on-Trent is leaving to become director of the VNA. Um, I know Jeremy Corbyn is a big fan of the arts, but I don't think the VNA is exactly his model of a socialist arts policy. But that's not what this is about. It's not about who was there before. It's about who might win. So we'll start with Stoke, Chris. Stoke is interesting for lots of reasons. It was always an interesting seat. I mean, Tristram Hunt held it, I believe, with the fewest number of actual votes because very low turnout. And then it was a three-way split. He held it for Labour and then UKIP and the Tories were pretty much neck and neck second, a fair way behind, but not a million miles behind. UKIP are running their new leader, Paul Nuttall, and Labour are running a candidate called Gareth Snell. Uh, they're both somewhat damaged candidates. Nuttall has clearly a track record of not being entirely truthful about his past in various publications and online statements. Snell has an unfortunate history of Twitter abuse. I mean, I think there was some excitement among the anti-Corbynites when he was chosen because he's been rather abusive about Jeremy Corbyn on Twitter, but it turns out he's just been generally abusive about women and people he happens to see on TV he doesn't like the look of. We've got two relatively weak candidates. Who's, I mean, who do you think really runs a risk of trouble if their candidate doesn't win? I think the stakes are high for Jeremy Corbyn in Stoke. On the one hand, there's been a dynamic that's been building for a while about how UKIP poses a threat to the Labour vote in the Midlands and the North, about how Stoke-on-Trent is one of the UKIPiest areas of England and with a very high vote to leave in the referendum. 
So if there are Labour seats that are going to fall to the UKIP, Stoke-on-Trent has always looked like a likely candidate. However, Nuttall has turned out to be a terrible candidate. However much the media talks about Labour threat to Labour from UKIP in the North, Paul Nuttall is from Liverpool and Stoke-on-Trent is not in the North. And he doesn't seem to be getting much of a welcome in Stoke-on-Trent. Because he's the new leader of the UKIP, there's a media spotlight on him, and he's being found out. He is not an impressive candidate, he's not an impressive speaker, he has a track record of telling a lot of lies. He recently took down his website so journalists could stop combing it to find things they could fact-check. And that makes Labour confident that they can hold the seat. But if it turns out that they can't, in the face of a haphazard UKIP operation with a poor candidate, that will be very bad for Jeremy Corbyn. And I don't want to draw an absurd analogy with the American presidential election, but there was a sense in which the Democrats had chosen the only candidate who could lose to Trump and the Republicans had chosen the only candidate who could lose to Hillary Clinton. It's a bit like that here. That Labour seemed to have chosen a candidate who could actually lose to Paul Nuttall and UKIP have chosen a candidate who could lose to this guy Snell. I mean, it's, is there any possibility that the Tories could... I think the Tories could have won this seat if they'd actually decided to try to win this seat from the beginning of the campaign. And the reason is, is, is that Theresa May, in many ways, is a quite good leader for the kinds of voters that the Tories might attract in the Midlands. She's not a Midlander herself, but she has certain characteristics that go down better there than, I think, the leaders of the main parties for some time. Sorry, what what do Midlanders like in a leader? Well, she's quite introverted. She's not flashy. She's quite matter-of-fact. And these are things, I think, that do play well. You're saying this as a Midlander? (laughs) Yeah, Okay. In in some sense, I am, yeah. I think that if we go back to some of the things I was saying in the podcast uh, when we first started doing this about Ed Miliband, I I was pretty confident from the start that, that Ed Miliband just didn't work in the Midlands. I think Theresa May does not only better than him, but he's better than Cameron. You can see the Conservatives having a basis for winning some seats, particularly perhaps in the East Midlands. Obviously, Stoke is not actually in the East Midlands. The difficulty they've had this time is is I don't think they quite took on board what lousy candidates UKIP and Labour were going to come up with, and their opportunity this time would have been dependent on that fact. And because they thought, without those two lousy candidates, I don't think the Conservatives could have won this seat. And they thought there are two by-elections happening, and they thought their chance was in Copeland, and Copeland looked like this amazing opportunity for the first time, I, th- I can't remember how long it is, 30-plus years, for a sitting government to win a seat from the main party of the opposition. That's right. It's the Mitchum and Morden by-election in 1982 is the last time that happened. And that was in the saga of the breakaway SDP from the Labour Party at a time when the Labour Party itself was was very unpopular. But that's right. It's uh, 35 years since that happened. So a Labour defeat in Copeland would be a, a, a landmark event. And I think that on that, if Labour don't lose that seat, the only reason they will have not lost it is just because of the issue about the maternity unit in Copeland and the fact that it's under threat of closure and it would mean that pregnant women would be taken to Carlisle across a county where travel is not the easiest, at least in bad weather conditions. So even if Labour hold on here, it's a contingency. I think everyone can see how this seat is not something that without that Labour would hold on to in these conditions. So there is a possibility that Labour will hold both seats and that will presumably allow Corbyn and the people around Corbyn some breathing room. To go back to Stoke, as you said, given what Nuttall has been through, he's kind of like a sort of absurd Trump lying candidate, but without any of 
Trump's charisma, as far as I can tell, were Nuttall to win, that would be pretty bad news. But given this is, as you said, one of the UKIPiest seats, if UKIP can't win it with their leader, even though their leader turns out to be a very flawed candidate, that really is a problem for UKIP, isn't it? UKIP have never worked out how to do by-elections. They had a good candidate in the Eastleigh by-election, standing in the election that was called after Chris Hune went to prison, and they came close to winning that seat. They had a good performance in the South Shields by-election when David Miliband left British politics. But in general, for all the hype around UKIP and Farage's leadership, they've generally struggled in these elections where there's a focus, the spotlight falls on a particular seat. Except when the candidate is a defector yeah. from the Tories, which Except is the only the, time they've won. Exactly. They did come quite close to winning in Haywood and Middleton. They were only about 600 votes out. That's right, but it's those two Conservative seats in Clacton and the one in Kent that they held, that Mark Reckless held for a bit before losing at the, at the general election, where they've been successful. The Labour firewalls have always held, and that always seems to me quite an interesting fact. In one of those Greater Manchester by-elections not so long ago, there was the one following the death of Michael Meacher. There were great expectations that UKIP might either win or come very close, and in the end they fell a long way short. So whereas the Lib Dems are a party at the moment that are underperforming in the national polls, but they seem to have got their by-election and their local election mojo back, and that great triumph was in Richmond, the UKIP are still struggling when it comes to elections where real votes are cast. I think that UKIP have made a, or Nuttall, have made a big mistake in this one because I'm not so sure that it was as good territory for UKIP as it's been made out to be. I mean, according to their own internal models, it was 73rd. Now, it could be that internal modelling is hopeless and given their organisational abilities, that, that is quite possible. But even allowing for that... I think that there's better territory for them. And I think one of the reasons why it's not as good territory as it could be is is precisely because the Conservatives can do reasonably well, at least, in Stoke. So he has probably made a huge blunder yeah, because his leadership he's, is, he's blasted is toast. He's basically he... put his credibility on something that probably was, if not unwinnable, then at least much more difficult than it, than it looks. And is there a broader problem that the old rule, be careful what you wish for, they got what they wanted, which is... Britain's exit from the EU and so it's not clear to people what they stand for or is their problem the Farage problem that once you get past Farage there isn't anyone who is a plausible national politician or is it both? I think it's a mixture of things I think Carswell is a plausible national politician he's just not a plausible national politician for UKIP I think that Farage developed a personality cult and that's one of the reasons why they're organisationally so weak they simply don't seem to know what they're doing in terms of what as Chris says winning a by-election actually requires and I think in some important sense, they have been made redundant by both Brexit and the way in which Theresa May has positioned the Conservative Party since. I still think they can possibly do some damage to Labour in parts of the North where it's just still inconceivable that people will defect from Labour directly to the Conservatives. But there are seats where that's not so unthinkable, and I think Stoke may be one of them. One thing I was struck by, and this connects to what I'm about to be talking to Mary Beard about, in Stoke, where the candidates are terrible, they're all men. And in Copeland, as far as I can tell, the candidates are quite good. I mean, there doesn't, hasn't been any of that sort of publicity around 
know, which of these losers is actually going to win. And they're all women. So the four main parties have put up men in Stoke and the four main parties have put up women in Copeland. And it is a kind of interesting little microcosm. I mean, the, the candidates in Stoke, it is, a, it is a bit like the American election. You think of all the people they could have chosen, these are the best they could come up with? I don't know nearly enough about what the range of possible candidates for the Stoke uh, by-election were, so I, I don't think I've got anything useful to, to say about that. But um, <laughs> no, It was one of those questions that didn't really have an yeah. obvious but I think there's one point thing, to it. One thing that's really striking about Stoke is, is here you have a by-election that comes about because the sitting MP leaves. That sitting MP was parachuted into this seat you know, as a former special advisor, I think, to Peter Mandelson uh, at the very last minute and was imposed with a great deal of resistance from the local constituency party at the time because of the nearness to the election. He ended up with the lowest vote of any winning MP in the last election. So you think that the parties could see that having someone as a local candidate with strong links to the city would be a good thing. But not only did UKIP not do that, but Labour didn't do that either because Gareth Snell isn't from Stoke either. Um, He's not a local candidate. But I think that the Conservative candidate is a local candidate in Stoke. Yeah, I think that's right. Jack Brereton is a councillor for some ward with a long name, Baddeley Green, Milton and something, and he is on Stoke-on-Trent Council. So he, is a, he does seem to be a local candidate in a way that the others are not. So I think we, so we're not going to speculate. We've learnt better than this, especially since these things go out and then the election happens and then it doesn't look so clever. I don't know who's going to win these by-elections. But it's unlikely the Tories will win in Stoke, but it's possible. It's just possible. Were the Conservatives to win both seats, the sitting government, from the main party of opposition, even Jeremy Corbyn couldn't survive that, could he? he that was a long pause. Yeah. <laughs> I, I think he could. And, I mean, he can, he's shown he and, can survive lots of things that no for, one can and survive. And for a couple of reasons. One of them is that by-elections are always funny occasions and that means they can be made to sound more important than perhaps they are but also there are strategies that you have for underplaying the significance of the result one of the things that's going to happen tomorrow is that storm doris is going to make her way through the through england and the weather forecast for stoke is terrible and the weather forecast for cumbria is pretty bad by-elections tend to be fairly low turnout affairs and if there's bad weather all day that drives turnout even lower it's going to be easier to say that we shouldn't read too much into the results. The other thing is that the dynamics surrounding Corbyn are not those surrounding a normal leader of the opposition, that nobody thinks Corbyn can win the next general election. Nobody thinks that Jeremy Corbyn is a prime minister in waiting or, or only some of the dwindling minority of his, his more deluded supporters. But... The people around Corbyn and Corbyn himself will be determined that when he stands down for the leadership, they can pass it on to somebody from what last year was called the core group, from that rump of Labour MPs from about 30 members of the Parliamentary Labour Party, who have some significant degree of sympathy with what Corbyn is trying to do. It's not obvious to see who that leader might be. For a while, people seem to have thought it was Clive Lewis, but he doesn't seem to get on so well with the 
hardcore Corbynites these days. Now people are talking up Rebecca Long Bailey, and we'll find out, I suppose, over the next few weeks whether she's a, a figure of substance. Yeah, in um, my case, we'll find out who she is, because until I read in the newspaper about 10 days ago that she'd been fingered as the next leader, I'd never heard of her. Absolutely. But terrible by-election results and terrible opinion polls and the media talking about how Corbyn is hopeless, this won't have the same ability to dislaunch him as it might have had if we had a more conventional leader and a more conventional set of political dynamics in the Parliamentary Labour Party. I think the other thing that's going on in terms of the factions around the leadership, the McDonnell faction seems to have made some moves over the last week or so, including getting rid of the man who ran Corbyn's campaign, effectively Simon Fletcher, and tightening the grip of the people who are committed to the Corbyn project but understand that Corbyn is a liability um, as a leader. So in terms of the ability of others in the party outside the Corbyn project to penetrate that and to weaken their grip, I think that they're actually in a more difficult position than they were even a month ago. The by-elections are happening the day that you hear this, on Thursday. Next week, if something really dramatic happens, we will come back to this. And we'll be talking about this in the context of Brexit and everything else as we carry on discussing British politics. Now to the conversation I had a few days ago with Mary Beard. We went to her house, we spoke in her kitchen, and we're talking about a lecture that she's giving next Friday for the London Review of Books, the LRB as she calls it, at the British Museum, the BM as she calls it, on the subject of women in power. I began by asking Mary what the starting point for the lecture is. In a way what it does is it takes off from a lecture I gave in the BM for the LRB three years ago, which was about the public voice of women. And that was a lecture which was really thinking about how, as far back as you go in Western culture, men have tried to silence women. And obviously that's a political dimension. But what this lecture is trying to do is kind of to go one stage further than that, partly to think about women's voices in the political sphere, but to think much more directly about really whether we have yet a cultural template for the powerful woman. Of course, we know there are various powerful women in the world, but that doesn't seem to me to undermine the point that we don't really have a a kind of way of envisaging what a powerful woman is, except to make her almost a male. What I've been doing is some fairly obvious things like looking at how you know Merkel and Clinton and May and Sturgeon and Sturgeon. Let's mustn't forget the Scots. You know, just how they dress. And as soon as you sit down with a bit of Google Images, you see that to be a powerful woman hardly means getting on a trouser suit. There is a a sort of women in power costume which is actually as close as it can be to male dress without being that's where I think Theresa May is quite interesting because although she can do that I mean I like to think that somehow this shoe business is actually her way of being subversive it is actually her way of saying right okay you're not going to make me an androgyne not entirely I'm just reading, there's a new biography of her, which is a bit premature probably because she hasn't been Prime Minister for long. It's by the woman who wrote the Corbyn biography a couple of years ago, Rosa Prince. It's kind of interesting, but it's just so, I'm not that far through. So I mean, she's left Oxford, she's about trying to become an MP, but still, you get a sense of 
an incredibly conventional person, actually, leading a very conventional life. But just with these hints, as you say, and a lot of people report of her that it's not quite as straightforward as it seems. And it's not just about the clothes, but partly it is about the clothes. When you see her, do you see a very conventional woman politician? Or do you see a little bit more subversion than just the shoes? I'm not sure that I know what a conventional woman politician is, apart from these trouser suits, because I think actually within that rubric they operate very differently. But in thinking about May, and I don't think that this is, I don't think this provides a rule or a convention or whatever, but in just thinking about how she operates and talking to people who almost know her, I think that there is a way that she has actually managed to turn her exclusion from that male, clubbable, Cameron, Oxbridge boys world into her own advantage. You know, that actually she's, by not being one of the lads and not being one of the lads with all the kind of bits of male bonding, honour, responsibility and non-ratting on each other that goes with it. She has, in a way, carved out a bit of independent territory. A friend of mine the other day said, look, she could actually get away with changing her mind in a way that the blokes find it much harder to do. So I have many doubts about May, but... There are signs, I think, little hints within that apparently, rather aggressively conventional external appearance that she's quite adept at just tweaking at the margins to her own advantage, whether that's with the shoes or whether it's with her strategic remoteness from the Bullingdon world. So how contrived this is, I, I don't know. I guess I, what I meant, in a sense, she's a very conventional politician and her path to power, after a period in which people were getting into power, young and so on, it's got that kind of steady progress to it. But it, it, what really struck me about the book, it touches on what you were saying, it's like there's this parallel story, there's the Cameron story, that part of England, Chipping Norton, Oxford, London... And she also follows that track, but the other bit of it. So she you know, she grew up in a vicarage in the place near where Cameron then has his kind of grand parties. She goes to Oxford and it's kind of geography, not PPE. And so she's like the parallel version of him under the radar. And that here she is, she's seen him off. But it's, it's under the radar. And sometimes you can turn that... And I, I say, I don't think this is a... Now, this is not a recipe for success, but in, in, in analysing an individual's path to power, you can see that you can turn your under-the-radarness into your own advantage because you're not trapped in the way that Cameron was trapped. Now, that's the optimistic reading of it. I mean, I think you can flip that, can't you? And you can say, look, actually, May has come to power in the most difficult of all times with a supposed mandate to carry out which is almost impossible to bring off successfully and you know, this is yet another example of a woman being given the job she's going to fail at you know so or whatever we think of Cameron you know actually Gove and Johnson well out of it and four years down the road 
actually we will find that May was the dupe. So you don't buy the line that she has successfully surrounded herself with a series of fool guys who will take the hit, including Boris, let's call him Johnson actually, including Johnson, uh, David Davis, Liam Fox and others, before they get to her. She'll buy herself some time. I can do different narratives. You know, I can do the provision of the fall guy narrative with her actually putting herself in a position where she just goes ahead and does what she wants and remains untouched by this because it can always be. I can also do the, you know, in the end, she's going to fail. And look, history is full of not so much the UK, so you haven't had that chance to do it. But, you know, Asian politics is full of women being put into power in order to mess up and in four or five years time it's very hard to know what our narrative about her is going to be and in asian politics that's often dynastic which is a big part of it and that's the big difference well there are two big differences between the hillary clinton and the theresa may story one of which is that hillary lost but the other of which is she was caught up in that whole dynastic narrative so it wasn't simply as a possible woman president but it was as the wife of a former president and so on I mean, Theresa May is, in a sense, not part of that story. And, and that story has been a very big part of women in power. I mean, that's where May is much more like Thatcher, has, you know, obviously, that, you know, their trajectories, both within and without the traditional structures of British power, are very similar, and neither of them have the dynasty. And dynasties can work for you or against you, can they? And they certainly worked against Clinton. And Hillary Clinton, you know, lots of things were thrown at her, but... She faced a politician, unlike any other anyone had seen, who in some way or another managed to convey a kind of authenticity that it was held up as the thing that she lacked. For whatever reason, she was tarred with the brush of inauthenticity. And she, she seemed to get it more than anyone else I can remember. I mean, it's, it's been a consistent... Politicians are often accused of being a bit fake or whatever. But with her, it was just that kind of... It's almost like she's fake all the way through. What was driving that? Well, I think, because I would, wouldn't I, that some of this goes back you know, deep into how, in the West, women have been abused and categorised and the very nature of our misogynistic discourse. I mean, I think in writing this lecture, I've been very aware that it's, it's extremely easy to say, oh, look, you know, what did for Hillary? Misogyny. That's easy. You know, it doesn't tell you anything. Of course it did. <laughs> you know, every culture is misogynistic, so tell me something new. If you just use a kind of confident, uh, broad brush claim that, you know, women in power face misogyny, or, you know, I don't think it's really worth listening to that. We want to know how and why. And phoniness, I think, is really, really important here. And this is where I find putting together ancient discussions of women and modern ones. And I think, you know, we're not, you know, simple-minded inheritors of ancient traditions trapped by them, but they have given us a framework for thinking about how we talk about, particularly about gender, I think. And one of the things you find time and again in both Greek and Roman literature is the idea that the woman is phony. You can't trust a woman because she's not what you see. There's endless stuff about women make themselves up you know so women pretend to be what they're not and I think that it's 
extremely interesting to see that working through. Often, I think, not consciously thought out, modern abuse of women politicians mm. in a way that is not so prevalent in abuse of men. And I think the idea that Clinton was phony, the idea that May is phony, there was a really interesting headline in The Guardian just a, f- a few days ago talking about the stock market rise. And the claim was that behind the stock market rise was Trump, as the headline said, who was a con man, and Theresa May, who was a phony. And I'm sure that nobody writing that headline sat down and consciously thought very hard about those words. But for me, they were absolutely a giveaway that Trump is the active deceiver. You know, he's the smart guy. He's the guy who gets in there. You know, he's the white boy. Right? And actually, we all quite like a white boy, really. That's Comenar. They're white boys that, that we like. We, and that's why we get conned. And the phony was May. And there was no absolutely no reason in the course of the article to divide them in those terms. But it just said, look, that's the switch that you trigger about abuse of men and women. Now, it becomes more complicated, I think, because it would be very nice or very easy to do this lecture, but also, again, a bit boring, if you could say, look, let's list the abuse words, you know, the male abuse words, male politicians, the female abuse words, and we would always be able to put man on one side and phony on another. And you know, it isn't as simple as that, because at the second order, of course, real abuse of men is to abuse them in terms that you would abuse women. So one of the ways that you abuse men is to feminise them. And so you do get a real fudging of the abuse discourse. But you see that very clearly in Trump's anxiety about the parodies of Spicer. Yeah, so that's Melissa McCarthy dressing up as his press spokesman and uh, doing it pretty... I mean, I, I thought it was way more effective than the Alec Baldwin. So this week on the podcast, we had Rory Bremner talking about how you do Trump these days, and we've talked about the problem with the Baldwin one, which is it's just, in a way, too obvious. And, yeah, the fear that one hears from the Trump camp is if, if they're all played by women, <laughs> they're doomed. Yeah. I just thought, oh, great, from my point of view, when, it, when somebody was saying... Trump doesn't like to see his advisers being paraded as weak. Mm. What that means is Trump doesn't like to see his advisers being paraded as women. And yet, I've got, I mean, I think in, in, in terms of thinking about female power and, you know, and leaving aside the glass ceiling model, which I think is not terribly helpful, if you, you see ways of subverting male assumptions and turning them against themselves. If you you want to say, how can a woman actually attack Trump? Well, it is not by being offended. It's not by being outraged. I mean, I think there's much too much claims to offence that goes on, even in actually very powerful speeches. I mean, I I watched the Julia Gillard speech, a famous denunciation in Australian Parliament. But I, in the end, I got fed up with the way she said, I'm offended. I'm off- I, thought, I don't care whether you're offended. He's a, he's a tosser, right? Now, think about a way of making him look a tosser without saying, I'm offended. You know, because what you're doing is you're making yourself a victim. Whereas Saturday Night Live 
it uses their prejudices against themselves. I want to tell you a glass ceiling story and get your reaction to it, which is um, Diane James, the woman who was leader of UKIP for about 20 minutes, came to give a talk in Cambridge. It was after Trump won, but before he became president. She was asked, who would you have voted for in the American election? And she said, well, Donald Trump, of course. And took her question, I said, why? And she said, well, because Hillary Clinton is a crook. And then the next question was, well, how would you vote in the French presidential election? And she said, I'd vote for Marine Le Pen. And the questioner said, why? And she said, because I think it's important to break the glass ceiling. <laughs> I just thought I'd share that with you. <laughs> it was one of my wow politics has got weird moments of last year. Yes. Well, not even weird, but just beyond parody, really. So what's, what's your problem with the glass well, ceiling? My problem with, I, with the glass ceiling is, is, it ought to be that, but it's wider than that too. And it goes back to the way when people start to talk about women in power or women out power, and you look at the basic documentation of it it's all so bloody stratospheric it's all about how many women are there in the legislature or how many women are CEOs of FTSE companies it's always making power a very limited thing to have and actually a very elite thing to have and then there's a few kind of elite women who are doing a little bit better and I did think that in the American election, although the New York college-educated women were very excited by the idea of the glass ceiling, and of course it must be a better thing that there has been a, or would have been a female American president than not, but I think there's millions of women for whom whether one white woman becomes president means not a jot. Then power is something different. And it's very hard, I think, to separate, but I'm sure you must, to separate power from prestige and celebrity. You know, what do we actually want women to do? Do we want them to, well, take the Rwandan parliament, 63% women? Do we think that's, is that an achievement? Well, in some ways, of course, it's an achievement. Is that the be-all and end-all and the touchstone of whether women are power? I don't think it is in Rwanda. So, So then the analogy with Barack Obama where it really did make a huge difference to African-Americans that they had an African-American president. And that's been brought home even more since he's gone, not just because of whom he was replaced by. But I've read these kind of really, in a sense, heartrending accounts of what it meant and what was lost. Do you think that's fundamentally different? That kind of identity with, maybe because it's not so much about power, actually, it's about something else. In that I don't think African-Americans were particularly empowered by Obama's presidency, but they were certainly hugely energised by it and also uplifted by it. I think that the coordinates of discrimination are different in those cases. Um, And there would have been thousands, millions of women who would have been delighted and there would have been thousands and millions of little girls who would have been told that a woman can do everything. But it was also pretty clear that whereas in Barack Obama's case... There didn't appear to be, thinking back, loads of black men saying, well, that doesn't matter to me. There were loads of women thinking that privileged Clinton woman breaking the glass ceiling is not going to help me one jot. And many of them voted for Trump. I mean, Barack Obama's support among African-Americans was close in some groups to 100%. Many, many women voted for Trump. 
Yes, and, and I think that you know, it would be very easy to deal with discrimination if it was all of the same kind of basic nature and coordination, right? And if there was a, if the fix was the same. And it's absolutely clear that the black American president is different from the potentially female American president. And the inherited nature of the discrimination against them is different. Now, that doesn't mean one is better than the other, and I think it's quite hard to see that from this side of the Atlantic. But if you look, for example, at... I think one of the nastiest bits of the campaign against Clinton has been the Medusa images of her, you know, that she's a Gorgon. And the particularly nasty one, which I think I shall probably talk about, is the mock-up of Benvenuto Cellini, Perseus, with the decapitated head of the Gorgon. And Perseus has the head of Trump and the Gorgon is Clinton. Now, you could not do that with Obama. There's not an analogue to that particular version of discrimination. You know, the idea that you could actually have <laughs> somebody with a bleeding head of the rival is, I mean, is extraordinary. And for me, it's one very clear reason why, in a sense, you have to look back at classical antiquity. Because if you just show that to somebody, there will be people in 100 years' time, 200 years' time, you know, writing essays at universities on why Clinton lost. (laughs) We hope. (laughs) Depending on how the next four years go, but yeah. We hope. That's that's all right. We shall overcome it. Um, And if they're going to make any sense of their essays, they're going to do a good essay, they're going to need to know what Perseus decapitating the Gorgon means, how Clinton is being killed, raped, undermined by that, the violent heroism of, you know, a guy with a sword who actually cuts the head off his female rival with her snaky looks, which are going to castrate him if they've got any chance and, you know, give her half a chance, she's going to turn you to stone if you look at her. Now, it does seem to me that you need to investigate that kind of really visceral misogyny, which is, like it or not, hardwired into Western culture. The idea of the Gorgon, you can be a modern French feminist till the cows come home and you can try to recoup the idea of Medusa into a feminist symbol, but still you've got Trump supporters decapitating her on their T-shirts. So in Britain, where the Prime Minister is currently in this odd position, she's a conventional politician riding a wave of populism and that's that's one of the tensions that she's going to have to deal with but she's also facing a pretty broken opposition and one of the ways in which the opposition is broken is it does seem to have a problem with women both uh, you know attracting women but also I mean, to vote for them but also and I know we just talked about the glass ceiling but promoting women and now we're meant to believe that Corbyn is possibly thinking about stepping down and John McDonnell has groomed a couple of young women that nobody's ever heard of but are acceptable to the men on the left in order to fill his place I mean Labour looks like it's just disappearing down some kind of dark hole in this in this space I, now. I have to say that I fear that's true. And I was extremely supportive of Corbyn to start with. 
partly because I thought that the Labour Party had reached the end of the road anyway, and that when I looked at the at the lineup of candidates when Corbyn first got the job, I thought, you know, I think Andy Burnham's a nice guy, but he's not going to take the Labour Party out of the rut it's got into, you know, where every time they come on the Blasted Today programme, they tell you the same thing from their script. I, you know, I want somebody to mean something. I want someone to speak to me. And I was one of those people who thought, you know, at least Corbyn means something. At least he's kind of speaking to me and it's, and it's not necessarily from whatever's coming to his iPhone. And I still think that that there wasn't an obvious alternative candidate, so I'm still trying to kind of justify my own support. I'm, and that would include Yvette Cooper as well, presumably, who I, I have to say was my preferred candidate, but I, I take the point entirely. She, she did speak to the script. I just could not bear any more speaking to the script about hard-working families. I would have just throttled them. And at least Corbyn wasn't doing that. My predictions were all wrong. I thought he would shake them all up. It would be a terribly kind of difficult time for the Labour Party and awkward and uncomfortable, but somehow then things would settle down. This wasn't factoring in Brexit. (laughs) Uh, When, you know, indeed a serious opposition was needed. And I think the Labour Party has got, both from what you see in public and from what you hear on the grapevine, I think there's big problems about women in the Labour Party. And I've been reading on and off Harmon's autobiography. And I think that there's another kind of sense of, of, of words of abuse. And I don't want to make it look as if I've been spending all my time doing Google word searches. But Harmon is clearly reacting, as we know, to always to the accusation of whether she's thick. You know, and that's, that's what you can say about Harmon. People say she's thick. And you say that if you're Rod Little, but much more widely. I then tried, and thought, oh, I'll put Cameron Thick into Google. Now, That's brave. <laughs> Cameron is accused of being thick from time to time, but only when he's done something really stupid, like tied his bicycle to a bollard so that the lock didn't work, you know? So, you know, a, a kind of keystone cops. But Harmon, and it's kind of validated by those guys in the Labour Party, None has got any idea of what Harmon's IQ is, but she's a load of jolly good things and she's a force for good in the world. And in that case, it's pervaded, as I say, by them as much as it is by the opposition. There is a sense that she's not clever. And that fits very easily into another kind of category of how, how women... Think. You know, What do we think a clever woman is? A clever woman is somebody we wouldn't want to get to bed with. I think, you know, is, you know, from a blue stocking, a nerd. And, you know, and in terms of thinking about power and thinking about how to kind of move power out from simply being about whether somebody's prime minister or not, which is totally relevant to most of us, practically. You know, the idea of how do we think about women's intellects? How do we think they're smart? In what way can a woman be clever? You know, if you go back to the ancient world, people say, oh, no, Greeks and Romans, they had a woman goddess of wisdom. No, they jolly well didn't. They had an androgyne who was a virgin and not even born from a woman was their goddess of wisdom. So there is no way for women to be wise. And in the bowels of the Labour Party, they will use that abuse as much as the Tories. Do you think that there's a generational difference I mean, Corbyn and MacDonald, they predate Harriet Harman, 
and they come from a world which was unquestionably male-dominated, but it also had some pretty prehistoric attitudes right the way through it. And politics, which looked to be getting younger and younger in its leaders, has suddenly got older and older. And Corbyn attracted a lot of young people to him, although I think they've abandoned him over Brexit. All the evidence is that for many of his young supporters, Brexit was the deal-breaker. But there is a huge difference in generational attitudes around some of these things. And as politics has got older, do you think actually the thing that's going to change is a changing of the guard, which must be coming at some point relatively soon to a genuinely new generation of people in politics? Well, we've always thought that, haven't we? No, I'm trying to be optimistic. We've always thought that. And, you know, if we do the, the prediction, if we do the fast forward, if we take optimism, then that's one way it might go. You know, the other way is that actually we haven't got a slow transformation. We got we're stuck. Mm. Don't know? We're stuck. Mm. And I think the idea of role models is slightly patronizing and I'm frankly fed up with men telling me how I can do better with their help, you know. But it's very hard to see how you think of yourself as a female politician, let's say age 30. When you close your eyes and you look at yourself from the outside, what do you see? Now, you know, we know what men see. (laughs) And I don't know what women see. And I I think that basically I'm kind of optimistic and I, you know, I'm 62, I think it is. Am I 62? 62. So it's always a good idea when you get past 60 not to be able to quite remember. And one part of me says, look... I've lived through revolution. You know, if I think about what my mum, who was, you know, a powerful head of a primary school, you know, when I think of what she could have done, what she wanted to do, what she achieved, you know, I can see all the ambivalences there. But I can also see that you go on 50 years and the opportunities for making a difference in the world have just been greater for me. And, you know, part of me thinks, look, oh, come on. You know, women have only had the vote for, you know, not, not for 100 years. And, you know, I work on the long durée, and in 100 years' time, this will all look a bit piddling. So that's one, you know, one way. You know, things take a long time to change. And there's actually quite a short time in terms of the great scheme of things, but it feels a long time when you're living through it. The other thing is, I think, look, if there are big cultural blocks... You know, you get small changes, you get aggregates, but you don't actually change the structures within which women can think of themselves as ambitious, as powerful, as clever, as articulate, and able to make that difference in the world. Some, of course, some always do. But the idea that women have got a model for doing that, and I don't mean a kind of role model in the next person, I just mean a kind of cultural template for doing that. Until we can provide a narrative and a template, then I think we've got a problem. Mary Bid's lecture, Women in Power, is next Friday. I'm afraid it's sold out. I think it's been sold out for a long time. But if you want to hear it or watch it, it will be available on the London Review of Books website. That's lrb.co.uk. And you can go there to find out details about some of their other lectures as well. We also have a new website. It is talkingpoliticspodcast.com. If you go there, you can find an easy way to get all of our past episodes, but also you can find out a bit more about the panel, who we are, 
what we do, why we think the way we think, maybe. So do follow us there. Please follow us on Twitter, subscribe on iTunes. And next week, we will continue the conversation about British, European and American politics. Do join us then. My name is David Runciman, and we've been Talking Politics. So apparently Mandelson spends every day, did you see this, doing at least one thing to bring Jeremy Corbyn down. That's lovely. Even if it's only an email or a phone call, he does one thing every day. I know people who are doing that from Mr Trump here in America, one thing a day. If you want to do, if you want to just do a pure election nostalgia trip, there was a presidential election in Turkmenistan last week where the president was re-elected with 97% of the vote. Mm-hmm. Proper old fashioned. Mm. Let's get Glenn on. Talk, <laughs> talk us through the, the opposition yeah. results. Yeah. <laughs> How that final 0.3% was divvied up between various jailed dissidents. <laughs> <laughs>